Welcome to Kick Your Butts, a show where excuses, limits, and boundaries go to die. Where moving through everything that's holding you back is the key to stepping onto your infinite path and achieving the success you deserve in life, business, and relationships. It's time to take those butts and kick them into oblivion. Now, here's your host, Susan Desenzi. Welcome back to another episode of Kick Your Butts, where we are obliterating those butts, those boundaries, those excuses, and those limitations. Hello. I am so excited to have a very special guest in the house today. And I'll tell you why. I met this person, and I know I'm being really mysterious right off the bat. I met this person about six years ago, I want to say, because we were at a function together because we were both very interested in getting our books out there into the world and making a larger impact that we knew we were here to make. And you are not going to believe her story. Like, I'm not kidding. This is one of the most incredible stories I have ever heard. And she is such a dynamic, powerful woman. So who is this person? Well, I am honored to welcome Jessica Santanato in the house. And before I start chatting with her, let me tell you a little bit about Jess. She is based in Toronto, Canada, and she is a TEDx speaker, an inspirational speaker, and she shares the messages of forgiveness and finding the gift in painful experiences. That's not always easy to do. She is an award-winning author, featured alongside Lisa Nichols, Neil Donald Walsh, and Sark in a book series called Pebbles in the Pond. Now, in her latest memoir, Flip the Script, that will be released in, I believe it's, well, I'll double check with Jess, but I'm pretty sure it's February 1st of 2020. She shares her journey of living a criminal lifestyle, assault, attempted suicide, and domestic violence all before the age of 30. And this helped her to rise into conscious leadership and humanitarianism work by the age of 35. Wow, just that five-year difference. She is recognized for her leadership abilities, and she was one of three people chosen by an American personal development company to help more than a thousand entrepreneurs from across all continents achieve success through the power of vivid story sharing and communication. Flip the Script, an organization that Jessica founded, is a raw and unfiltered story sharing community where everyday people inspiringly share how they've overcome adversity and discovered the gift in their pain. Now, isn't that a perfect reason why I wanted to have Jess on the show? Simply because that's what this show is all about, right? Now, proceeds from events support their story sharing program, which is called From the Streets to the Stage, that gives men with criminal histories a platform to speak their truth. She has been featured in media such as Cosmopolitan Magazine, Rogers TV, and various podcasts, and has given talks at Humber College in Missawaga City Hall. I always say that wrong, probably Missawaga. I'll ask Jess, inner city schools and at an event for international peace 
activist consciousness hip-hop artist Emmanuel Jal. I probably totally massacred that. Jess, thank you so much. Welcome, welcome, welcome. I am so honored to have you here. Hi, Susan. How are you? Good to see you. Good, Good to, to see you, too. Yeah. <laughs> it's Mississauga. <laughs> Mississauga? Yeah. What did I say? Mississauga? You said Mississauga. Mississauga. I was like, where's the W? And it's yeah. Emmanuel Jal. Yeah. <laughs> Emmanuel Jal. I'm so sorry, Emmanuel. Oh, you know, this show is about keeping it real. We swear on this yeah. show. We keep it real. I mean, look, you can't do the kind of work that you do and not be real. So I just love that about you. And so we've started off with a bang. <laughs> Perfect. Yeah. So I am so honored to have you here, Jess. So thank you for having I would, me. Thank you. I would love to find out what exactly is Flip the Script? Flip the Script is a story sharing community of people who come together. This is just everyday people who come together and share their stories of adversity and how they overcame. So there's mm -hmm. always a message that they found through their dark experiences, and now they want to share it with other people to inspire them and help them transform their lives. And then proceeds, as you mentioned, from all of our events, support our story sharing program for men who have criminal histories or who are in recovery as well. And we help them unlock their life message and give them the tools to share their message confidently from the stage. And it's really about showing them that they matter showing them that they're valued, yeah. and giving them a platform to speak their truth. I love that. And we've talked a little in the past, and uh, you know, you guys might know or remember that I used to work in a prison. I'm pretty sure I've talked about that in previous yeah. episodes. And you know, one of the reasons that I adore Jess so much is that I haven't met too many people throughout my career or my life who really look at people who've been in prison as people, right? Mm -hmm. So many people tend to judge people who've been in prison and, and men who've been in prison, maybe sometimes even a little bit more so than women, right? right? Because with women, we might kind of go to that place and say, oh, well, they might have been a victim of this or that. So we can understand yeah. why they might have made those choices. But men, I don't know. Have you found that in your work that men are judged a little bit more harshly? That's hard for me to say because I don't work with women. I work with just men, so I can't, I don't have that comparison. Yeah. I would say, just from my, my personal view, I could see that, you know, kind of, you should have been smarter. Like, you, you know, I, I don't know. It's hard for me to even step into that place of judgment. Do you know what I mean? Because right. Yes. I, I work with the guys and I just, yeah. I see love. And yeah. like I said, I, I help them see that they're valued and they matter. So for me to step into another, perspective of, you know, I, I, like I said, my mind can't even go there. Oh, I love that. I love that, actually, because it shows your depth of heart and that you just simply see these men as people who, who made a choice that landed them maybe behind bars, but that doesn't mean that they aren't worthy and deserving of love and of exactly. what society would call second chances or whatnot. So I really love what Flip the Script is doing and what you are doing in that realm. I'd, I'd love to hear kind of how you got into this, though, a little bit about your story, because my God, you've been through what sounds oh, like wow. just an enormous amount. Well, you, you sure you're ready for this, Sue? Oh, absolutely. <laughs> so I was born and raised in 
Edmonton, Alberta. And I like to give kind of a background of my upbringing because usually when people hear my story, they, they're, they're like, oh, yeah, of course that makes sense. You grew up in a single parent household and you grew mm-hmm. up in poverty, but I didn't have any of that. So I, I grew up in a very good home, quote unquote, good home. No financial stress, no abuse, no substance abuse issues, nothing. And it was simply that I was bored. You know, one day Mm -hmm. I was 15 years old. Hey, a teenager, we know what it's like to be a teen, all those hormones. But I, I had nothing to do. And, you know, as much as I want to say the city sucked and didn't have many activities for teens, I really, truly longed for more excitement. Mm -hmm. And funny enough, you know, growing up, I always was into true crime stories and Mm -hmm. ghost stories. And so I don't know what it was, maybe a past life thing. So I had this opportunity come into my life where I started to meet these guys online. You know, this is really like the start of the internet, people starting to get on the dialogue, right? Right. I remember I was at school and one of my friends, there were these two twin girls and one of them, especially, she was kind of egging me on to get onto this online forum. And she said, you know, what I hear is there's one of these guys on there that, so he was part of a murder that took place in Edmonton a few years prior. Mm very famous murder. There was a a gang member that was hacked to death basically in the middle of the biggest mall in North America. Actually, I think it was the biggest mall in the whole world at the time. Wow. And he was hacked to death on Boxing Day, the day after Christmas Day, in front of all these shoppers. So that didn't scare me. I was very intrigued. Hey, there's this guy who is a part of it, or maybe he was the guy that killed the guy. I don't know, but I'm going to go on and, and start talking to this guy. And I did. And before you know it, he thought I was joking around. He didn't think I was actually a girl on the other end. And we started talking. And before I knew it, he invited me over to his place because he was in house arrest. Mm. And I went there. I told my mom, I'm going to a friend's brother's place. And, you know, my mom, maybe she knew, maybe she didn't. She let me go. I was, again, I was only 15. And we became boyfriend and girlfriend before I knew it. He was the first guy I was with. I started to skip classes and, you know, him and I didn't last that long, but it was my first look into my first experience into getting arrested myself and drugs, sex, obviously. And then at 16, I started to hang out with more of these guys who were involved with gangs. Mm-hmm. So, and by the way, Sue, I'm going to keep talking. If there's questions, just ask me, okay? Oh, yeah. No, I'm just, fa- I'm fascinated by this story. I mean, not fascinated in this like, woohoo, positive way, <laughs> but I just, you know, come on. That's what this show is all about is overcoming adversity and going yeah. into the depths of those dark places and then emerging into the light and the power of who we are and carrying that on into the world to make an impact. And that's exactly, you are the epitome of that. So yes, please just continue. Keep I'm just on. sitting okay. here listening. Yeah. <laughs> so at 16, I hung around more of these guys and, you know, I got involved. It's funny because even though I was exposed to these guys who were in the gangs, when I would go over to their house, I would see them on the floor, either smoking weed, wrapping drugs, 
you know, porn would be on in the background. And in my head, I'm thinking, you guys are a bunch of fucking losers. Like, even though I was attracted to the lifestyle, I just knew there was something beyond this, Mm -hmm. beyond this lifestyle for me. But it was fun at the time. So let me let, you know, you did say something just now that I would like to to interject on and ask them. So you, you knew down deep that this was kind of, you know, I don't like the terms right and wrong, but you knew that there was something kind of off about this and that this wasn't really who you are and the direction you wanted to go in. And yet you found yourself still kind of being compelled to stay involved in the lifestyle and with them. Now that you've come out of that and you're doing the work you're doing, do you understand why you did that? Like, is there any awareness of kind of what that draw or pull was really for you? At that point in my life at 16, I'm, I can't quite put my finger on it. I think it was just the continual intrigue about the lifestyle and getting to know ah. these guys. And, and also because they accepted me, mind you, I had a, sex with a lot of them. So it was a way of self-acceptance, right? Ah, I, mm-hmm. I felt I was valued yeah. and, and I mattered, right? And that's yeah, what right. all of us want. And that was what I had from them. And then as I got older, it's funny because when you're in that lifestyle, you know, I never thought, wow, we're, we're, or I was never officially in the gang, but I associated with them, but I never thought I'm running with the gangs. Like you don't use those terms. You just are. Right. right? Yeah. Yeah. So I think when I got older, because I grew up the very shy kid and I was bullied as a child Mm. and especially I don't know if you know anything about Edmonton, Alberta, but especially growing up in the 80s, it was very white. Let's just say that. And okay. I'm Asian. So I was in a school of 300 kids in elementary school. I was one of 10 minority kids in the entire school. That's oh, wow. how, mm-hmm. you know, big difference. Yeah. So because the kids in the, the, you know, as you go on through life, you kind of stick to the same schools, right? As you go on mm-hmm. through high, high school. And the table started to turn. So those kids who used to bully me, they now feared me. And I Uh, thrived on that. Like, okay, well, guess who's talking now? Right. Yeah. Like you were the one that was fucking with me all these years. And now look at me. I have the power and look who I'm backed by. So, you know, you mess with me and wow, it could be a very different story. Exactly. That is very enticing. Yeah. Yeah. So I was on that high. And then on top of that, as time went on, I could not, after I left home at 17, I couldn't, I had to save face. I couldn't go back to my parents and say, please take me back. You know, I messed up. I was adamant on making it on my own. Oh, wow. Yeah. So I did not mean to interrupt your story, but like those, that, that was like, when I, when you said that, I'm thinking, you know, isn't that interesting how we can know something or feel something really strongly? And that's kind of those buts, right? In our minds that we're like, yeah, but I don't really care about that right now because this is so much cooler over here. I like this so much more and it's given me so much more. So screw that. I'm going to leave that over there. Yeah. So yeah. So then what happened? So you're 16. Yeah. And just actually quickly touch point when you said that about when we think about, but, and then we, we go the other way, it's, as if the ego takes over, like the soul a lot of times is trying to take us another way, yeah. our, our higher self. Yeah. And then we're like, but, and then that's the ego taking us. Right. Yes. 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 Love that. <laughs> so, so true. Come, to, come back to that. So yeah, I started hanging around more of these guys. And one day I, again, still 16 years old and I was brought to one of these apartments 
I should say invited to one of these apartments and there was a whole bunch of guys in this place and these guys man one place was never the same right they were always rotating and changing mm -hmm. places and I knew one of the guys and then he said he had to go so I was left in this apartment with all these strange guys I didn't know and I was told to wait in this bedroom and it was a dark room I had to it's one of those rooms where I had to stand on my tippy toes to see out the window oh wow and you know, one guy had come in, the first guy that came in, I knew him from before, and he was a gang leader. And he was a guy that you never wanted to cross. Mm -hmm. You never wanted to say no to. And he was absolutely feared. And so him and I ha started to have sex in there. And, I, you know, I didn't say no to him. And as I started to put my pants back on, another guy came in. And another guy, and another guy, and another guy. Mm. And... There was one guy at the end, he was an older guy, older compared to me, I was 16 at the time. And I remember being in tears at the time because I felt so exhausted. Sure. And I begged him not to do this. I said, I looked at him like, I said, please just go out there and tell them that you did it. Just please don't do this. Mm -hmm. And for the first time, I felt like I was actually seen as a human being by one wow. of them. Wow. And he looked at me and he paused for a good at least five ten seconds and and he walked out wow i was a little in shock that he walked out but by the end of that night i was raped by 13 guys oh my god jess and i didn't recognize the severity of it like i said i was exhausted and i took the bus home after that and the the Next day, I remember I had this amazing grade 10 math teacher and I hated math. So I was, you know, put in this like lower uh, route of math you can go through. But my teacher was amazing. And I, I told him what happened, not because I was afraid and, and traumatized really, but because my grades, I, I, you know, had to tell him why I would be missing school or why I wasn't feeling too well or, you know, sure. just kind of still processing things. And I remember his jaw literally dropped open and we were sitting on the, the floor at lunchtime and in my head, I thought, wow, is it that big of a deal? Because again, this is my being at 16, I lost my virginity at 15 and then 16, I'm still exploring what sex is and what, right. what's normal. So to me, that was, you know, maybe this is how things are done. And it, even though I knew it was, again, quote unquote wrong. I'm like you, I, I don't like to use the terms right or wrong, but it wasn't, I knew it wasn't supposed to be this way, put it that way. So you knew it wasn't supposed to be this way. And at the same time, because you were kind of indoctrinated into this world at 15, in yeah. this kind of way to begin with, this kind of criminal mindset, kind of gang activity, kind of lifestyle, you didn't really, from what I'm hearing, recognize that this was really kind of out of the norm then from that. Exactly. Is that right? So you're kind of like, I'm into lifestyle. This is kind of part. So did you recognize later that you were justifying it at 16 in order to kind of stay in the lifestyle and for your mind to be able to try to make sense of it, to lock it away over here in this corner? 
You know, here's the thing in that lifestyle, everything moves so fast that you don't have time to stop and process Uh, any kind of traumas, anything Mm -hmm. you've seen, anything you've done. So it's interesting because it's been, you know, that age is such a formative time. Some of the most formative years that somebody has. And it was interesting, like I said, because I grew up in this really good home and it was almost like I had to rewire my brain for this other kind of lifestyle. Yeah. And I had to become my own self-therapist and Mm -hmm. talk my way through things and try to comprehend some things. And the minute I would try, it felt like I had five minutes to be my self-therapist and then the next thing would happen. And so there was a lot of trauma that I had experienced and even a lot of the guys that I hung around with, you know, to find out that they were murdered in the newspaper, you know, I'd find out the next day or I would hear about it and go, shit, I was just hanging out with this guy, or I just had sex with this guy, and now he's dead. And Edmonton had a very, very big gang problem in the late 90s, early 2000s, especially that year that I was involved. That was the height of the violence in the the city. And it was all over the paper, so the whole city knew about it. So I was right in the crux of everything going on. Wow. And, you know, and then there was a gang war that happened. You know, even... I was talking to my husband, Michael, the other day, and I said, I am so freaking lucky to be, I, I shouldn't say, I don't, I don't believe in luck. I'm so blessed to be alive because when I look back at all the people that are now dead or even the girlfriends or wives of those guys who were innocently sitting in their cars and were shot to death because, you know, the, the enemy, if you want to call them enemy, saw just the car and shot it up. I am so blessed to be here, to be able to you know, share my experiences with you here, Sue. Sure. So, you know, you're, you tell your teacher this, his jaw drops. What happens next? I mean, does he say anything? Does he do anything? Does he tell anybody? He told me he would refer me to the high school liaison officer. So we, the school had a police officer Uh and I was like, "Uh." I had a great experience at my previous school and this was a new school. So my first half of grade 10, I did it at another school, which was considered a school for quote unquote bad kids. Okay. But I went there because it only, it offered Spanish. It was the only school in the north side of the city that offered Spanish and I wanted to learn it. And so he, I said, sure. Okay. You know, I went along with it and I met with the, the high school officer. He didn't really care. I didn't like wow. him. And one day he called me into his office and the gang unit was sitting there waiting for me. Wow. So Edmonton police has a gang unit that was assigned and all the gang members knew these two guys. And so they came in there, they talked to me again. They didn't care about what happened to me. They really were in it for their own agenda. They sure. showed me this big book of mug shots and they asked me to flip through it and point out who I knew. And you know, to get them off my back, I pointed to a couple of guys and, and that was that. Wow. There was no, do you want to, what happened? Do you want to charge them? No. No empathy, no compassion. It was basically, it sounds like they were using you as kind of almost like to be a mule for them to kind of give them insight into the gang. Exactly. And then as you can imagine, as a young girl, it's to add to that, you know, is this normal to have been I didn't consider it rape at the moment, but was it normal to have this experience and then to have these police officers just completely bypass it, kind of confirm that it's not a big deal? 
Right. You know, and, and I've talked about my own assaults right. and how at nine, I had a police situation that was similar where, you know, I learned that a lie detector machine, quote unquote, was this box where they take a piece of paper and they feed it into this box and a yellow light and a green light are on the top. And if the yellow light lights up, it's a lie. And if a green light lights up, it's a truth. And that's the lie detector machine, right? <laughs> and they told me they had put his story into the, to the lie detector machine and it had popped up green as truth. And I looked at them in my little nine-year-old defiant self and said, well, I don't know what to tell you then because your machine is broken because it's wrong. But it did reinforce, like you said, this idea that these police who we're supposed to trust and we're taught right. are there to help protect and serve and, and care for us. We're all of a sudden dismissing, mm. you know, for me at nine, I couldn't understand like, like how, why do they think I'm lying? Like, I don't get this. This doesn't yeah. make any sense. And so it doesn't matter at nine or 16 when we are up against those quote unquote authority figures who we're supposed to trust yeah. And they're just going down a totally different road. Yeah. It creates a tremendous amount of thought and self-doubt and distrust, not so much of the outside world, but at least for me, of my internal world. Yeah. Did you find that to be yeah. the case for yourself? Yes. And like we were talking about, we touched on earlier about our soul and our, our higher self speaking to us. It's almost like denying that right because our yeah. i believe my higher self was trying to tell me something but my external world was telling me otherwise so this conflict especially at 16 when you're totally not aware right it's like it's a it's a big conflict you know and and what's going on and like i said being in that lifestyle you don't have time to talk to anyone else about it you can't talk to anyone else about it and you just move on Wow. So it becomes putting a bandage on top of another bandage on top of another bandage. Right. So then what happened? I mean, like, my God, after that kind of experience, were you still, you know, you said by the time you were 30, so this must have gone on for another various different things for 14 more years. Yeah, I stayed in that lifestyle. It didn't deter me. My parents were back at home and I know it was a very painful time for them, especially my mom. My dad, I never had a close relationship with him, mm -hmm. but I know he's, he always loves me. He's just not a good communicator. And my mom, I put her through so much pain and that hurt me seeing her in tears, but yet I kept hanging out with these guys. And one day I just had enough. I felt like they were too strict and I remember calling up one of these guys and I said, you know, come pick me up. I'm, I, I want to leave. And I packed a luggage full of my basic stuff, the things that I loved. And I waited upstairs because my parents had an alarm system in their house. So the door would chime. Mm -hmm. And as soon as I saw the car pulled, pull up, I ran downstairs and ran out the door and that was it. So wow. at 17, I had, it was a month about a month after I turned 17, I left home and never came back. Wow. Wow. So I went to one of these guys' apartments and it was actually the guy who instigated the gang rape. So it, he was there at that apartment. And then there was a guy sitting on the floor. And it was interesting because this guy was nicer than the other guys I was used to. He said, hello. And the way he said it was very genuine. And I remember mm -hmm. thinking, oh, that was different. 
And as I passed him, I went to the bedroom and me and the other guy ended up having sex. And then again, I was, you know, I thought, let me just wait here. I don't know what the next instruction is. I'm just going to stay here for now. And then that guy came into the room and him and I started to have sex. So I got out of the room and he, the, the guy, the new guy, he said to me, you're going to come with us. And again, I didn't question anything. We dead of, dead of winter got into a car. There was three of us and we went to this house and I didn't find out later and didn't realize till later that it was a drug house. So that's where they were wrapping the drugs. And again, you don't question anything. You just do, right? You just assume right. that you're yeah. asked to do something. So I was picking up, I was observing how to do all this stuff. And I started to wrap everything, you know, weigh everything, wrap everything with them, package everything. And then when we were done, that new guy, he said, hey, come out with me to the car. And I went to the car. He was warming up the car. I was in the back. And he said, I joked to the other guy that I'm going to kidnap you. Mm. I had this like nervous laugh, right? Like, uh, sure. Right? Because okay, again, you yeah. don't question anything. Right. So this guy, we, I went back to his place and it was different. Again, he was different to begin with, but his place was immaculately kept. He had beautiful stuff, beautiful furniture, unlike other people. And he lived alone, unlike the other apartments where there was a bunch of guys and messy. Yeah. And, all. and so him and I, we stayed together. And I knew, I, it's funny, even though I was involved with these guys, I knew I wanted to finish school. School was a big deal for me. I was pretty adamant on that. That's so, like the higher self piece, right? The higher Guiding self you. thing. Yeah. And it's funny because he said to me one morning, he goes, uh, no, I said, I got to go to school and I have to take the bus because his place was down further than my other my parents' place. And he said, no, you're not going to school. And I said, yes, I am. And he was like, no, you can't go to school. And I started to cry. And he said, do you have any money on you? And I said, I have $50. And I'm thinking my mom gave me this last $50, right? In, in Chinese customs, the elders give the young ones money. Mm -hmm. So that meant a lot to me. And he took it. And he said, I'll give it back to you, but you, you can't go to school. And he's like, okay, how about this? I'll drive you after lunch. And I said, okay, fine. So he brings me. And again, I didn't know his status. I didn't know who he was up to this time because he kept saying, have you heard about me? Have you heard about me? And I said, no, I'm thinking, should I? Yeah. And so he brought me to school and I said, you could drop me off here. And he said, I can't drop you off here. I have to go over there where nobody can see me. And I said, mm, okay, sure. That yeah, works. Yeah. And I went to school. So long story short, I found out that he was a gang leader and he, my principal found out through the high school liaison officer that I was with this guy as mm -hmm. well. Again, this is over time. And so the principal called me in one day and he said, if you're going to be with this guy for the safety of other students, I'm, I'll have to expel you. Oh, and I no. Said, yeah. And I said, that's okay. You can expel me. <laughs> and he goes, well, I'm not kicking you out, but if you're going to be with this guy, I have to. And I was like, I'm going to finish high school on my own. And I oh. walked out of there and that wow. was it. You never went back. I never went back and I finished school on my own. I, I found like a night school and managed to get my high school diploma and I'm very proud, even though I was running with these guys. And yeah, that's tremendous perseverance. Did he ever give a reason, that, that guy, why he didn't want you to go to school? 
like, like you know, you're like, I'm going to school, and he's like, No, you can't go to school. Did I he ever give you part of control? It's, oh, it's just the control, pushing yeah. the boundaries of how sure. far can I get with controlling her, right? And you know, being with him in the first week, I would say the first week, I've never had anyone put their hands on me like violently before this. And he thought I gave him attitude. He asked me to get him a coffee and a paper from across the street. And I guess I rolled my eyes or something. And Mm. he had put his hand at the back of my neck and he pushed my head violently and really suddenly fast into the wall. And he stopped just before it hit the wall. And I remember just crying. And all I could say was don't. The only, the word that came out was don't. And I was crying and he said, don't ever give me attitude or something like that. Don't ever roll your eyes at me again. And that scared me. It really did scare me. But the fear didn't make me want to leave. It made me think, okay, let me never say no to him again. And I will obey whatever he says. Wow. Because I also knew his status by then. Right. Yeah. And so, and again, now I'm like, I also have this protection, right? No one's messing with him. I have this great place to stay. I'm still going to school. But now the rule is I can't contact any family or friends. He told me I can't talk to anybody. So, you know, being Another a parent level. now, yeah. being a parent now, I, I actually just apologized to my mom again, was it like two nights ago? Because I realized more and more the amount of pain that I caused her. I can't even imagine me now having a 17-year-old knowing that her 17 year old was out there running with the gangs and seeing she even she told me the other day she said jess i was just waiting to open the paper one day and see you in the headlines along with these other guys yeah you know and my friends they started to read my book and they told me two of them they said your mom would they didn't even these are separate messages they sent to me they said your mom would call me in tears asking where you were and they said they had no answer because they didn't know either. So I can only imagine the level of pain that I caused her. And so I couldn't talk to any family or friends. I could only use a payphone to, you know, if I had to, had to use it, I had yeah. to use a payphone. So there was a lot of things that I was learning. And then two weeks after being with him, we found out later that he was on a Canada wide warrant and we didn't know this. And Two weeks after I met him, we were at a storage locker and I was sitting in the SUV. We rented this SUV and I was in the passenger seat and he was getting something from the car and all of a sudden, which is our equivalent to the SWAT team, team, they swarmed the entire area and all these big guns were drawn and I was like, fuck. That was my thought. And he went running. Wow. And I was in the car and this, the first guy with the megaphone, get out of the car, turn backwards, walk backwards with your hands behind your back. I, was, I, I wasn't scared. I was more pissed. Like, how dare you fucking interrupt what he was doing? <laughs> he was doing. <laughs> wow. You know, and that's the thing. It's like the level of control has escalated, right? He, yeah. has, he has increased his level of control. You're obeying. And no matter if there's a part of you, was there, was there still that part of you? Do you think that higher self part of you that was telling you anything? Like when you said don't, that's more of a survival thing, right? Like you don't, you don't want to physically be hurt. 
You know, your head's getting pushed into a wall and you're like, ah, don't. But over that two weeks, even though it was such a short amount of time, did you notice that there was any part of your higher self saying anything to you? Or were you so feeling ingrained already in kind of the, his level of control again, because him or this lifestyle or the, I'm babbling here for a second in my question, because it's kind of like twofold how I'm seeing it. And I'm curious how you see it now versus how you potentially saw it then, because it sounds like there was that part of you that was loving this attention and this lifestyle. And he was this different guy with this different kind of home, right? He treated you a little different from the outset. So there's like, wow, there's something new and different about this guy compared to my experiences up to this point. But then he shows his control and his violence level. Yet you don't really kind of pay attention to that, but a part of you maybe did. And yet you kind of stayed in that. Like, did you notice any of that then? If I was to look back on it, I don't think I was present to it at the time. Okay. However, I know there were many times where my higher self was talking to me, even though I didn't consider it my higher self back then at 16. Right. Yeah. I knew that, again, hang out with these guys, I knew there was something more for me. And I knew this wasn't it. Yeah. I knew that there was just something beyond this. But right now, this is what I know. And this is what's happening. Yeah. And I didn't have a lot of time, again, to self-reflect. It was go, 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 go in that lifestyle. Right. And I became desensitized very, very fast to the lifestyle, to money, to things that were happening, you know, another murder. You know, I started to believe that if somebody fucked up, they deserve to die. I Mm. had believed at some point that if a woman so-called was out of pocket, that she was entitled to be beaten, that she had deserved it. I had believed that in my younger years, my teens and early 20s. And so... So you found yourself following more of what he said then. Yeah. Because you felt you were being out of pocket. And I I need to comment on something. Some of the lingo that... Some of the language that Jess is using is very specific to well, relatively specific, at least here in the United States, to substance abuse treatment and in the recovery world. So out of pocket, just for you all, what that really means if if you're like, well, what the hell does out of pocket mean? It, It kind of is like it sounds, but it's like if somebody steps out of line, if they become kind of like out of pocket, I mean, they're, they're not following the rules and they're not doing what they quote unquote supposed to be you know, are supposed to be doing. So yeah, I just wanted to point that out <laughs> for everybody that if we're using a lingo here, there's a reason for that because this is kind of Jess's area of expertise now within forgiveness and working with, you know, men who have had criminal uh, backgrounds. So, right. all right. Yeah. So go on. So like, yeah, wow, so the big guns was, and yeah, he took he off. Was- he was he took off, but then they grabbed him and they arrested him. He was on the six o'clock news. He was taken to the police station. I was taken to I don't know if it was the same police station or another one. Uh-huh. And they had me interviewed, knowing that I was a minor though was a big benefit because you know they said, you know, do you need a, do you want a lawyer? And you know, me trying to be tough, I said, I don't need a lawyer, right? And they said, Okay, well, 
sign, you need to sign these papers. This took, this was over a course of hours, right? Because I wouldn't say anything. Finally, this one guy came in. He said, look, you got this great life ahead of you. I know that you're a good kid. You, I know you go to school. And that got to me, right? Again, maybe it was uh, like, hello, hi yourself. It's like, yeah. I told you so. Yeah. And so he said, look, if you sign these papers, we'll let you go. You know, you don't want to be charged with being an accessory to all the stuff that he did. Mm-hmm. And that kind of scared me, right? Because I, I knew I didn't want to, again, I knew I had something beyond this, so I didn't want a criminal record. Yeah. And so I signed the papers. When I left the station, I called one of the guys right away and I said, I think I messed up because I signed papers. And he goes, well, that's not good. And I guess for somehow, whatever, however they coordinated it, so he goes by D in the book. So D had called from jail. He had called from the remand center. He called the guy and the guy came to my apartment and said, he's on the phone. And I was a little nervous to hear from him. And I told him right away, I said, I signed these papers. I'm so sorry. He's like, that's okay. And it kind of shocked me that he said, that's okay. And he told me where to find money that was hidden in the apartment we had. Mm-hmm. And he said, that should tide you over for a while. And from there, like literally on the phone, he asked me, do you want to be my girlfriend? So it was funny because we had started off by just having sex right? and me staying at his house. And then he asked me over the phone, do you want to be my girlfriend? And wow. I thought, well, I don't have anything else to do. And I know he needs me. I need him. Wow. So I said, sure. And from that day on, he called me baby. <laughs> that was it. Wow. That was the difference. Yes. Oh my gosh. So what, what happened then? Like, was this the guy you stayed with? Was this that the guy? That was the guy I stayed with. So for the next over three years, I stayed with him while he was incarcerated. Wow. And that's a story in itself. And, you know, if any of your listeners have the experience of being a loved one who's waiting for somebody who's incarcerated, it's very, very challenging. Very sure. challenging. Yeah. And I know not many, I'll speak from my experience, not many women wait for their their men that long so i went through a lot of very it was very challenging and because of his status he was able to have people follow me from the outside so Mm -hmm. when he would tell me you can't do this you can't do that don't do this and one day i i said you know what screw it i'm gonna go out with my friends and he called me the next day and he said where did you go last night oh wow i was like damn it so i just knew he was he was, I I couldn't do anything. I couldn't do anything. He was watching you. He was watching me. And it was interesting because even though he was in remand for over three years, again, he wasn't charged. And a lot of these guys on a side note, they were in similar boats. And to this day, I think there's still a a big civil suit going on because they shouldn't have been incarcerated for that long without being charged, without being um, convicted. So, mm -hmm. and uh, the, the, the conditions were really bad. And so he controlled a number of the guards he ran that jail so everything was at his fingertips and then eventually he said he couldn't take it anymore and i knew he was somebody that can tolerate a lot he a lot of pressure mm-hmm. a very resilient man and the conditions got so bad and even though he and when he was thrown in the hole he said i can't take this anymore like he said he, i said he said i'm going crazy and he was thinking about pleading guilty. And if he pled guilty, we knew that that meant another few years possibly behind bars, mm-hmm. but we were willing to do it because he just couldn't take it anymore. Yeah. And so he was the first to plead guilty under a new law in Alberta at the time, which is belonging to a criminal organization. There was a new law that took place and 
he was the first to plead guilty under that. So he was shipped out to a federal penitentiary and I would go and visit him. And then he got shipped out. We moved to Vancouver to start something new. So this was a, a pivotal time in our, in our lives where we married in Alberta. So I got married in a federal penitentiary, me, mm. him, lawyer, another guy incarcerated as a witness. Mm-hmm. And we got married and then we decided to leave Edmonton. He, he knew he wanted to change as well. I went to Vancouver and I started some post-secondary education. I had aspirations to become a doctor. And so I started, I set up shop for us there. I found us an apartment and he got transferred to an institution in the Vancouver area. And so, so, wait, so, so he, so he's incarcerated still. You're, you guys, you've moved to Vancouver and he's allowing you like, he, he's not controlling everything as much as he, like, you're going to school now, post-secondary school and looking at, you know, oh, kind of. Oh, he was a big supporter of me getting a post-secondary education. Probably my biggest really? fan. Wow. Leader, which was, I know that's surprising for people, but he was the biggest supporter because he wanted me to have an education. Now that I was officially, quote unquote, with him, he didn't want me to go down that lifestyle he didn't and it was interesting because when i was with him actually the moment that he said you want to be my girlfriend he started to shield me from that lifestyle and protect me as much as he can from those guys and that's Uh also one of the big reasons why we left and he refused to have me a part of that you know he he brought some things home and he told me some things but he didn't want me in it and involved in any way so and this is the same guy though who was like you can't go to high school exactly. you can't go to school so isn't that interesting how he you know initially you're this woman that he's got a sight set on this young girl and he's going to control you and he's going to tell you you can and can't do this and that and he's going to have you followed and he's going to have you watched but then as soon as he realizes or the 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 flip is really that you become his girlfriend it's like what it sounds like to me is like in his mind he says oh now this chick matters now she's important so now i want to protect you know it's all this backwards fucked up like i'm gonna abuse you i'm gonna attack you i'm gonna follow you i'm gonna control you i'm gonna like domestically violate you and be aggressive with you but there's the but you're my girlfriend now I'm supposed to care about you. I'm supposed to really show you that you matter to me. And so now I'm going to shield you from this. Wow. That's that. Did that play? Yeah. Interesting. Did that wreak any havoc on your mind as, as a young person? Like by now you've got to be what 20 or something. Yeah. uh, Just before 20, I was 18 when we married. I, I I don't think it wreaked havoc on me. It was more like comfort. I have this protection official protection and i know i'm going to have wow. this now yeah. for the rest of my life because we're married sure so i was just comforted by that and i always knew that wherever i went i wouldn't have to worry because i was with him ah uh. and yet the abuse continued right so it wasn't yeah. the end so even though i was with him it was still very verbally emotionally mentally abusive wow and you know, we had a lot of great times, a lot of genuine, genuinely great times. And we conceived our first child in prison. So I got pregnant at 19 and had our first child at 20. Mm. So he actually got out of prison shortly before our first daughter's birth. Mm. And that was a big deal. And he came home and 
again, a lot of great times, but also very abusive. And then when I was pregnant with our son, a couple of years later, he had threatened to kill me. He didn't try to kill me, but he had threatened to kill me. Mm-hmm. And no, sorry, he had hit me with a brush when I was pregnant. And when I had my son, my son was still in the carrier. That's when he threatened to kill me. Wow. And I went to the police headquarters and earlier in the conversation, Sue, you and I had talked about, you know, police, we think that we're, they're there to help us. Yeah. And so I thought, you know, this is my chance to escape an abusive marriage. I'm going to go against everything that I've known for the last few years, go to the so-called pigs, go to the enemy, and I'm going to get help. Right. And so one day I went with my daughter. She was two years old and my son was still in his carrier. And I told him, I'm, I'm going to go to the shopping mall with my kids, with the kids. He said, okay, there was no reason not to believe me. Right. And so the shopping mall, mall was next to the headquarters. And I remember walking up the steps going, wow, I'm doing this. And this is, this is like freedom is getting closer. And I walked up and I was, but I was also traumatized by what he had said to me. And I was in tears and I walked in and there was a female officer sitting at the front desk and she looked like I had bothered her from whatever she was doing. And she said, can I help you? And I said, my husband, he threatened to kill me. Mm. And I was in tears. And she said, well, do you have family in the city? And I was like, reality was I had a lot of family. But I said, yeah, I have an uncle in Richmond, which is mm-hmm. just outside of Vancouver. And she slid me the phone and she said, if you don't call him right now, I'm going to have your kids taken away from you. Whoa. Yeah. I could not. Why? Do you know why she said that? I mean, that's such an odd. Odd thing. No idea. And above all things, a female officer. And then she said, you have girlfriends for this. I'm not a counselor. Whoa. This is at number one, police headquarters. Yeah. Police officer and a female police officer. I thought if anything, I would get some kind of sympathy from a yeah. female. No, that was her response. Holy shit, that's traumatizing in and of itself. Like, did yeah. you what do you remember what you were thinking in that moment as she was saying that to you? Like was what the hell? I'm, I'm freedom. Forget it. Yeah, I, I was in complete shock. I called my uncle because obviously I didn't want my kids taken away. Sure. I told him what happened and my husband never found out what happened and he never found out. I went to the police. Wow. I went to my uncle's. Yeah. And I basically, because he knew I was upset though, because of what he said, he knew that I was crying and upset for what he said to me. I, I said, I just, I'm at uncle Mikey's. I, I need some time. And he was fine with that. So he never knew, but in my mind, I thought, wow, if the police can't help me, no one can help me. And so I went back to the marriage. And in hindsight, there's so many women and men as well. There's so many people that this is a loophole in the system that they end up going back to their abuser, the person that abused them, and they're killed or they're beaten further. So I'm very, again, I'm very blessed. That could have been the end of it, right? And they also say, based on statistics, that, you know, when you go to the police or you're once you leave, that's the height of when someone can be, you know, killed by their partner. Right, for sure. So I went back, the abuse continued, and we had our third child again two years later. All the kids are two years apart. Wow. And then we moved to Ontario. So we moved out east um, to the Toronto area. And 
in 2010, he tried to kill me. So I know this is a big jump, like, whoa. Yes, very abusive. And I was working as a caregiver. So twice a week, I was staying at somebody's house taking care of this older lady. And Mm -hmm. he confessed to me that he was very jealous of me spending time with other people. And he called me back one day saying one of the girls was hurt. I sped back home. He said it was a lie. They're fine. They're sleeping. And I saw an empty bottle of liquor on the table, which he never drinks. And he always had this look in his eyes when he got very upset that I knew nothing you could say would ever bring him back. It was just a mm-hmm. point of no return. Yeah. Almost like this evil took over. Yeah. And he told me to come in. He asked me if I was talking to another guy because he saw some emails. And I said yes, because there was a guy I was talking to that became my emotional support mm-hmm. whenever I went to work. From the, and he was my, a relief from the, all the abuse I would experience at home. Yeah. And he goes, really? And he punched me in the face. He knocked me unconscious. Uh, he, sorry, he punched me in the face. I fell back. And then he got on top of me and he strangled me unconscious twice. Mm. And he strangled me with his hands and he said, I'll kill you. He actually mm. said, I'll kill you. I kill people like you. Mm. What that means, the second part, I don't know. But he has what he said. And I remember it, very quickly, I had three thoughts. One, my parents will find my body here. Two, my children won't have their mother. And three, which became the catalyst from what, for what I'm doing today is, this isn't fair. I didn't get to do everything I wanted to do. Wow. And that happened in like microseconds. And I came to and he broke a chair over me and so much uh, adrenaline just pumping through my body, right? Sure. And he had come across around the corner and this foyer ledge, I don't know when he put the knife there, but there was about an eight inch stainless steel kitchen knife and he picked it up and he walked towards me really calmly and my heart sunk. I've never experienced so much fear in my life. I knew my kids were sleeping upstairs. They were very young at the time. And the front door was a matter of feet away from me. Mm -hmm. It was like, I can run. But the motherly instinct in me was like, I can't leave my kids. Right. And he walked towards me so calmly. He didn't, I don't think he even blinked. And I remember praying and I, I wasn't religious at the time, but I grew up Catholic. So what came out for me was, God, I hope this doesn't hurt too much. Wow. And I remember thinking, this is the last scene I'm going to see before I die. Like, this is it. Life is done. This living room, that's it. And he put the, he held the knife in top of my head, at the top of my head with the, the blade pointing towards my scalp. And I shut my eyes and braced for it. And I felt the knife go in and out of my scalp really fast, which was really freaky. And it felt like, you know, when you go with a dentist and you have your freezing and you can feel hugging, but you can't feel the pain, that's what it was like. And I think it was the adrenaline that was protecting me. So I felt zero pain. And because of that, I didn't know the extent of my injuries, but I felt the impact. And thankfully it wasn't deep enough to completely paralyze me or make me drop, but he left and I heard him take the other car that we had and I was in shock again. I was in shock from the the knife, but I was also in shock that he stopped all of a sudden. And 
you know, after a, f- a few words, he had left, he took the car and I took that opportunity to run upstairs, grab my kids, grab blankets, grab toys, threw everything in the car and I sped off to my employer's place. And crazy enough, I, I wrote him a note because it was her son that hired me, right? I was taking care of the older lady. I said, mm-hmm. I'm so sorry I had to leave. I'll be back in the morning at nine o'clock for my shift. Oh my God. And you're <laughs> bl- you, you just have been wounded by a knife in your head, yeah. right? And, and like, oh my gosh, and thank God that you're here because he could have penetrated your brain. He could have exactly. instantaneously killed you. And, exactly. and so you're bleeding. Yes. You've got your kids. You've taken yeah. this, your, the car. You've taken off. You go to your employer's place. My God, what happens then? I thought, because so I was, remember that experience I told you back in Vancouver where the police officer, she told me, right. I'm going to take my kid. So I thought, number one, I learned my lesson from the past not to go to the police. So I knew I couldn't go to the police. So I thought I'm going to go to the local drugstore and I'm going to get some bandages to bandage up myself. Oh my God. (laughs) No (laughs) thought of going to the hospital or anything, right? Nope. Because they're going to take my kids away. Nope. So I went to the, I pulled up to the drugstore. No, wait, wait. I I, I apologize. I don't mean to interrupt. Now this whole time, all these years, he's still involved in the criminal lifestyle and stuff, right? Wow. Okay. So you're still exposed to all that. You're just not as involved directly as like when you were a teenager. Yes, but he's still doing the work. He's still doing, yeah. Okay. Okay. And so I pull up to the drugstore and then I realize, Jess, this is ridiculous. Like no amount of bandage is going to help you. Like you need stitches. Right. Because I also had a defense wound that I didn't know till later, but a chunk of my, I have a scar to this day, but a chunk of my skin on my right hand was hanging off my hand, you know, not to be graphic, but I, I I just knew I couldn't bandage myself up. So I went to the, the hospital and I told my kids who were, they were so scared and so afraid. I told them to duck in the back seat. And I said, mommy's going to go get help. I'm going to go get stitches. Just wait here. I'll be back. Wow. Oh my gosh. No food, no bathroom, no nothing. They were there for hours. Aww. And uh, yeah, by the time I came out, the, the sun had already, you know, risen and um, I went in and, and, you know, again, you know, touching on, we won't go into a conversation about this, but loopholes in the system where the triage nurse who accepted me at first, she saw my injuries and she said, what happened? And I made some excuse. I said, I cut myself, you know, thankfully my head, it was bleeding, but it wasn't that bad. Right. And my hand though was even worse. And she goes, Oh, you cut yourself chopping vegetables, huh? You're right-handed. I said, yeah. She goes, Kate, well, tell me what really happened. Wow. And I told her and she goes, do you want to press charges? And I said, no. So I was told by the police after that, that should have been a red flag where they should have automatically been called. Mm -hmm. But especially that there's kids involved. Then the doctor saw me and he, again, he's like, do you want to press charges? I said, no. So I was stitched up and I had a lot of like, my teeth were chipped, my back hurt, everything. So I went back to my employer's place and luckily he was a very well-to-do guy and he let me you know, stay at his house for as long as I needed to with the kids. Yeah. And I, I healed there. He lived on a hundred acre farm. So I got to see this beautiful greenery every day and heal. And I swear he was a, uh, an angel in disguise, him and his mom. So 
I was healing. My husband found out that I was there. He was afraid he would, the police were going to come bust down the door and arrest him. He apologized profusely. And as all abusers always do. As they do. And I, we actually tried to get back together. I went back to the home and I started to drop things in front of him. I was washing dishes. I would drop them. I, and I felt like he was going to stab me from behind or take a gun and shoot me. And I was, because I was still, I was having these flashbacks and my psychologist, she thought it was, you know, signs of PTSD where I was, you know, not my same self. And right. I said to him, I can't, I can't do this. I can't do this anymore. And one day, again, loopholes in the system, but my employer had called the police in his jurisdiction mm -hmm. and they said, because the attack happened in another city, we, you have to report to them. And I was like, well, I'm not going to do this. Right. Right. And so they said, but what we can do is give you services to a psychologist. And so that psychologist three months later said to me, Jess, what if you go to the police and report what happened? Don't tell them you want to report, you know, have them arrested. Just tell them what happened. And one day what I was driving. Be, I'm sorry. What would be the purpose of doing that if like of telling them what happened? Was it just to report or was it because to if find it, out if he would be like, if I said, look, this is what happened to us three months later. This is what happened to me. Would he be arrested? What would happen to the Like she said, just find out what would happen. Oh, just to get information and stuff. Exactly. So right, I went okay. to the police. Well, actually, I was driving to work one day and I ha had already passed headquarters. And I swear, Sue, it was like divine intervention. There was this something took over the steering wheel and turned it back around. Oh, I, I get that. I, oh my God. Yes, I get that. I get that. Yeah. And if, if any of you listening really have experienced that, it, it is amazing when whatever that, we can call it soul, we can call it higher self, we can call it grace, we can call it universal intervention. I don't really care what you call it. If you've experienced that in any way, shape, or form in your life, even with something that you would deem small, it could be a something in this kind of case where it sounds like it was an intervention to save your life potentially. Yes. It could be something small. Like I had that happen to me once where the wheel literally felt like it was turning right when I was in the left lane to go left mm. and the turn to the right, what happened was not a good thing. Like I turned right yeah. and ultimately was in a car accident. Okay. But that car accident then allowed me because of a surgery I had to have later there was uh, a compensation that, that happened because of that accident, the medical bills, that then years later allowed me to be able to be at home with my mom when mm -hmm. she was dying to help take care of her, right? That, that little bit of compensation was enough yeah. to carry me through to be able to be with her. So it was like... It was a blessing that, in disguise. Yeah, it was that divine guidance or something that was causing me to turn the wheel to the right because I've always said I felt literally compelled like somebody took over the wheel. Wow. Yeah. So I get that. All right. So yeah. you turn so I did turn you the turn wheel around. around. Yeah. And and by the way, why he, he told me later why he stopped because you remember he stabbed me in the head and he stopped right. suddenly. He told me it was because the rosary that he was wearing, it broke in that moment. And that snapped him out of his rage and he was like, what the fuck am I doing? Wow. 
so almost I've like actually, he was divinely guided to stop. Exactly. And yeah. I, I, I've kept that piece and I've showed it to some audiences that I've shared my story to wow. because if that rosary didn't break at the time, I don't know that I would be here. Right. So if, that was a, another divine intervention. Yeah. Holy cow. Yeah. So you turn around. So yeah. So what happened? So I turn like, around just- and I go back to the headquarters. I'm oh like, I guess I'm doing this. Walk in, female police officer again. So I'm like, oh God. Right. Great. <laughs> so I tell her what happens and she's like, okay, one sec. Let me go talk to my supervisor. I'll be back. She comes back and she says, I'm sorry. Now that the ball's been dropped, we have to go arrest him. And I freaked out. I was like, you can't arrest him. You don't know who, who he is. He's going to come kill me. And she's like, don't worry. And I said, no, my kids are with him. She's like, don't worry. We'll make sure they don't see him. They sent a whole bunch of police officers there. I find out later my kids did see what happened. Wow. They, and you know, my, my gosh, that's another conversation about the traumas that they're dealing with. And so they arrested him. They didn't, he didn't know that it was me that reported. And he stayed in there for the next few years. And I, again, when he was incarcerated at first, I thought, okay, phew, like, okay, there's some kind of relief. Did it, kind of scared, but I did it. Still went back to go see him. I was secretly visiting him in prison with my kids. And I said, I would recant my statement that I said I would lie about the whole thing and get him out of jail. Wow. And were you afraid too at, at any of that time while he was incarcerated that he was going to send any of his boys after you yeah, to, to, yeah. Sure. Because like they, you said he didn't know it was you that reported them. But, but what is he being arrested for? Was it attempted murder? Was it? So because, um, yeah, I don't know what they told him or how, yeah, I don't know his side of the story of what they told him, but initially uh, he thought it was me, but they dinged him with, I think it was 21 charges. And, you know, wow. he already had a lifetime prohibition on firearms because of his violent past. Mm-hmm. You know, so he was caught with firearms and then they were trying to debate, is it attempted murder? Is it aggravated assault? And actually the prosecutor, she told me, she said, Jessica, I'm so sorry. She said, if this was the States, he would be looking at life. But because it's Canada, we can only give him a few years. So he only stayed in for a few years, even though yeah. you're visiting. Now you said secretly. So, what do you mean secretly? Like so I had so my employer, because he was well to do, he hired me some of the best lawyers in the city. He said, When you become a millionaire, you can pay me back. Wow, what so, a what a an amazing soul. I, I'm telling you, it was an angel that yeah. he, him. So I hired the old lawyers. The lawyers knew nothing about my visits, right? I was seeing them, seeing oh. my lawyers. I was not allowed to go see him, but I did. And Dee and I, we said, we're going to work this out. We reaffirmed our love for one another. I said, I'm going to lie about the whole thing and get you out. That was the plan. Wow. wow. And that was, oh my goodness, like uh, September, October of 2010. And then when I saw my lawyers in December, I confessed to them that I was seeing him secretly. And they said, on top of some other confessions, they said, they said, oh. Jess, if you keep seeing him, we cannot represent you. And something about them saying he's not a good father, he's not a good husband. And again, I don't prescribe to good or bad, but something that, about them saying it, these young fathers and husbands themselves, yeah. it was like another light bulb went off. Mm-hmm. I, I respected what they said. And that was it. Come January, I sold the matrimonial home. I gave him his half of the money and I got mine and I never looked back. 
I never went back. I heard later that he was absolutely livid and wanted to come out and, and actually kill me when he got yeah. out of prison. And But then over time, he that lowered and he found some more peace, I guess, just with time passing. And yeah, he stayed there. And I knew that I, you know, again, this is me now starting my life as a, a single mom, right? I was a single mom for five and a half years, which yeah. is itself and I just knew I had to do it for my kids so I started to invest in myself personal development I started my own business went to the went to New York City trained as a raw food chef came back started a catering company wow and when I heard that he was getting released my lawyer informed me and then he said well his lawyer says he wants to see the kids and I thought this is just a way to get to me and finish the job right so I was afraid and then so it came a point where I'm like ready to run. I was Googling places who would take me as a refugee. I was looking at Australia, places in the... In the in wow. The, like literally get out literally of North America. Get out. Yeah. And I thought maybe I can run across the border. And even my mom, she's like, and my mom never swears. She's like, you just fucking run. And wherever you are, somehow you just tell me, but you wow. just run. I don't care where you run. You just run with those kids. And I now, was... Now, how old are the kids at the time? At this time, this was, so he was released in 2014. So, so my oldest was 12. So eight, 10, 12. So they're eight, 10 and 12. Holy cow. And my oldest was so happy that her, you know, her dad was getting out because she was very close to him. Right. And she even got to, so yeah, before I get there. So I called the police and I said, there must be something, you know, I, and I told them I was ready to run. Like, this isn't fair. Right. And then he said, Jess, if you run with the kids, we'll come have you arrested because in the eyes of the law, he did nothing wrong to them. That's your kidnapping the kids away from him. Exactly. So I'm like, how messed up is this? And so I was living in so much fear. The police had come to my house and they had, you know, they did all the security. They flagged the house. They did whatever they had to do ghosted the kids in the system so nobody could see what school they were going to. Mm-hmm. And then something literally hit me one day. I was never on a, again, I left being a Catholic, even didn't consider myself a Christian anymore. Nothing spiritual you can say would, could ever penetrate me. And mm-hmm. I had a friend at the time and she said, Jess, you just need to trust. I said, what the hell are you talking about? She goes, Jess, she grabbed my hand. You just need to trust. And that's all she said. And I said, you're crazy. You don't know who he is, blah, 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 blah. So one day I'm working away in my basement and I swear it was like a brick dropped from above. And the message was, Jess, if you run now, you're going to run for the rest of your life. Wow. Yeah. And that message was so profound to me that I dropped all of my trying to run away, trying to Google where to claim refugee status to. And I told his lawyer, I said, I told my lawyer to tell his lawyer, it's okay. He can see the kids, but I need to talk to him first. Yeah. We set up that conversation. The moment I heard his voice, it was just a deep knowing, call it my higher self. It was a deep knowing that everything was going to be okay. I didn't want to get back together with him, but I knew I was safe and everything was going to be okay. Even though my reasoning 
mind was just, this could be the worst mistake you're ever going to make seeing him in person again and letting, you know, having a private meeting without any police or any security. You're because he even said, I don't want to have, you know, bring kids to some weird place and have guards there. And let's just do this as normal as we can with the kids. Right. And again, my, my reasoning mind was like, this could be the worst mistake, but something deep inside said, this is the right, everything. It's going to work out. It's going to be okay. And everything was fine. And we met up, we brought the kids to, do you guys have Palladium there? It's a big entertainment complex. I honestly don't know. <laughs> and like Dave and Buster's like uh, rides and video games and stuff. Oh, we have a Dave and Buster's. Yeah, I'm not sure if we like have. Dave and Buster's. It's kind of like uh, Dave and Buster's. Okay, yeah. So, so we brought the kids there and him and I spoke and kids were so happy to see him. Him and I, at this point in time, we had the best communication we ever had in our, in our entire relationship. Wow. And technically, Now, were you divorced? Were you still no, married? we were still married. So 14 okay. years married. And, wow. and this was the best communication we ever had. And I remember having conversations with him. I would call him up, you know, sitting on the porch in the summertime and just call him and be, be like, I'm so glad you're back in the kid's life, especially at this time, because now that they're going into their teenage years, and he said, I know, and all this stuff. And we had great conversations. And then I started to date and I was a little bit nervous telling him because of his controlling past, but I found out he was with somebody as well. And I came to a place where I was genuinely happy for him and he was happy for me. And, you know, one day he sensed that I was upset about something and the guy I was dating. So I had a tattoo. So both him and my, me and my husband, we had a tattoo on our finger. It was a heart with our initials. Mm -hmm. Right. So the guy I was dating noticed it and he didn't say anything, but I noticed it. So I said to, to Dee, I said, you know, I think I do want to sign the divorce papers. And he said, no problem, sweetheart. Just give me some time. I'll fly back next weekend. We'll go to the courthouse. We'll sign the papers. Well, that weekend, his dad called me, his stepdad called me and said, he passed away this morning. And oh I, God. there was no sign of sickness. There was no, he, he told me a few days prior that he wasn't feeling well, but there was no sign no nothing he was just found dead on his dad's sofa and his dad had hung out with him the night before they had beers they were having a good time and he said um he had to wake up early the next morning that was it his dad found him he he just knew he was gone so apparently it looked like a heart attack because the autopsy showed that 90% of his arteries, his main artery was blocked. So they thought it was a heart attack, but the toxicology report said he died of a fentanyl overdose and fentanyl is a big, big, big problem yeah. um, right now. And I think not enough people know about that. However, he wasn't doing fentanyl. It was laced into the sleeping pills he was taking. And I knew he was taking sleeping pills. So where there was this talk I found out later of the guys he was hanging out with, they were these other lead gang leaders that they had given it to him and they, he had taken it. And then there was this, there was also talk of like, was it suicide? And then was it just an accident where he, he was given these pills and he took it and then that was it. That's a huge problem here in the United States as well with a lot of, uh, drugs that are manufactured by illegal dealers, illegal yeah. manufacturers, people who have bought um, pill stamps and things like that to make pills look legitimate. And they yeah. lace them with fentanyl um, because you can buy fentanyl by, you know, mass in massive quantities from 
places across the pond, right? You know, in, in Europe and, and other countries. And people don't know, and they're taking a, a medicine, maybe for a medicinal purpose, thinking that it's just for this reason, especially like painkillers, or they think it's like an Oxycontin or yeah. a Vicodin, a hydrocodone, things like that. And what they end up doing is taking these things laced with fentanyl. Yeah. And we are seeing a massive increase in deaths and injuries and addictions on that level within fentanyl is a very, very powerful and dangerous drug. Oh, yes, definitely. Very, very powerful. Or like the fentanyl so, patches, right? Like it's just so oh, easy yeah. to take the patches and think it's no big deal really. But man, it's a very thin line between that last high and then overdose. That's it. Yep, absolutely. And I know that that it's controlled as well as it can be. Like when my mom was in hospice and she was dying, when she passed away, the hospice nurses were very clear that they were going to immediately come to the house, not you know within moments or hours of her death, but definitely within a 24-hour period to, to take back all the morphine patches oh, back wow. then it was morphine to take back all the morphine patches and they talked about how they had to put them in a lockbox in the trunk of their car. Yeah. Right. So not only do they have to record how many they took back, but now they have to lock it up in their car. Wow. But that's, that's for a health professional who is supposed to be dispensing and receiving back when someone passes away, not for someone who's yeah. in a, a criminal mindset. Was exactly. he still involved when he, when he was released then and you're both dating and other he was people, in, was he, he was still involved, involved in the some, some extent? It's harder, right? Being incarcerated for so many years. And then I was really a, a main lifeline for him to, you know, send messages or, you yeah. know, again, not directly involved, but I was some kind of lifeline for him. So that was hard for him, I think, to start over again. He still had, you know, his feet wet in the, that lifestyle, but it wasn't the same level as it was before. Right. Okay. And he was still known. So how did you like, what, what an unbelievable, I mean, it's believable, obviously it happened when I say unbelievable, it's just such a shocking story. And yet, sadly, it's not a shocking story because how many of us get caught up in a relationship or a situation where there's one part of our mind and our heart that says, I love this person and I want to be with them. And there's these good redeeming qualities about them. And there's this other part that is well aware of how dangerous it is or how abusive or how destructive it is. And yet there's that part of us that says, I don't know, maybe it's fear of being alone. I know in my work with domestic violence and my work in substance abuse and addictions through my career, I met so many people. I used to be a coordinator for a rape crisis center and run a crisis hotline. And we were also domestic violence. And I met so many people, men and women, a predominance more of the women though, like they know I don't want to be in this abusive situation. And at the same time, and and I was married to, my first husband was uh, emotionally, verbally abusive alcoholic. Mm. And so no matter how confident on one level I was and secure on one level. It wasn't that I was afraid to be alone as much as it was. There were so many parts of him I loved that it was almost like I learned to navigate the landmines. And -hmm. because I've learned to navigate the landmines, then when the worst stuff comes, 
it's really not that horrible, right? Because I can navigate through it to some degree. So I justify it in my head and they apologize and you go, okay, you know, there's, and, and like in your case, I had a child with my ex too. So it's like, he's the father of my son. He's the father of my children. My children love him, right? I'm going to stay okay. Where do you think the real tipping point was for you though? And then I want to ask about how it led you into the forgiveness work that you're doing. Right. Where do you think the tipping point really was for you that kind of caused you to just say, no, I really am done with him. I can love him and love parts of him, but this is an unhealthy relationship that I just do not want to be a part of in that way anymore. And you kind of stuck to that boundary for yourself. Where do you think that tipping place was for you? It's interesting because I've reflected on this before and there's a number of tipping points where it's like shifting the needle a little bit, a little bit, a little bit. And I think if there was an actual tipping point, hmm, it would be after he was released, I would say, and again, this is like me thinking in the moment, I would say after he was released and me going, I shouldn't say going on a spiritual path because we're, we're all on the spiritual path. Me being more conscious of who I truly am as a, as a, as a soul. Mm-hmm. Because when I started to see who I truly was, not just Jessica, who I thought I was, but like who I was as, as love, as a, as a being, as a soul, that's when I'm like, I started, and this leads into our conversation about forgiveness. I started to see more things around me as love. Yeah. Including people, including him, including the people that raped me. And I knew that because of that, I didn't quote unquote deserve what I went through. I experienced it. Sure. And I don't regret any of it, but I think it was that it was really, that was a big, big shift for me delving into this, this, you know, more spiritual readings and, and starting to become more self-aware, I was very blessed to have a business mentor where I thought he was going to give me 90% tips and techniques and strategies on how to build my business, yeah. but it was like 90% mindset. Wow. Yeah. And he would tell me which books to read. And I don't know if you read Florence Scovel Shin's, any of her books, but they're amazing books. And those were game changers for me, you know, and I started to read like think of thinking grow rich. So I was present to the power of our mind and creating. So when I started to go deep into that path, that was the real tipping point for me. That's so beautiful because if you think about it, you talked about how it was 2014 when he was released and this is 2019, almost 20. So that's only like five years ago, short time, yeah. right? A short time. And so some people could look at that and, you know, say, wow, how, how could you reach some level of forgiveness in such this short amount of time? Because look at all the horrific things you went through and all the stuff you experienced. And, and I want to ask your thought on that. I want to offer up first that, you know, forgiveness to me, and I want to see, you know, what your thoughts are on that. As a six-time sexual assault survivor myself. People have often asked me how I was able to reach a place of forgiveness because for those of you listening, Jess and I met about five years ago. Well, right. maybe maybe six. We are, were both co-authors in that same book, Pebbles in the Pond. And my chapter was titled, It's a Matter of Trust. Uh-huh. And it was about my last assault and how I saw that 
it was a gift, right? And how all of those situations that I had experienced. And for me, it was about being able to step into, like you just said, yes, I experienced these things, but they didn't really happen to me, to the core of who I am. They happened to my body and the physical form known as Susan. But when you realize who you are at the core, actually forgiveness can come very easily when we let go of the story and we see the gift of the pain and how it transforms us into more of who we already are, which is love. Yeah. And are able to then carry that on. Would you agree with that? Would you? percent. Is that kind of how you came to forgiveness yourself? hundred percent. Yeah. And again, too, I had that experience of how can you forgive that fast? And it was really, it was a, it was a matter of choosing, just choosing forgiveness. And I know that sounds easier to say. For me, I also thought about the impact of holding on to resentment. So forgiveness is ceasing that resentment, but the impact of holding on to resentment, did I want what someone else did? Did I want that energy to negatively impact me? No. Yes. And so I knew it would be biting me in the Mm -hmm. butt. It does nothing to hold on to resentment. So if it's hurting me, why would I hold on to it? So that was an immediate like dropping. Uh, That's gone. Wow. Got to go. And I think too, you know, having a background in health and making sure that I'm, you know, eating as well as I can and, you know, anything that's unhealthy for me, I was like, got to go. Right. You know, so yeah. So I say it like it's simple, but it's not simple. And I think forgiveness, I don't know that there's a certain, you know, steps to forgiveness or um, the right way to forgive. It came down to a matter of simply choosing. It starts with that choice that you're going to forgive. That's so true. And, you know, I honestly do believe that it is as simple as that as a choice. Just like in letting go, people are like, how? I don't know how to let go. And I don't, and it's like, well, you know, I always use the pen as the example. And it's like, like, do you have a pen in front of you? And they're like, yeah, and they pick it up. And then I'm like, okay, let it go. And they just open their fingers and they drop it. And they're like, oh, okay. And, and I'm, they're like, yeah, but that's, <laughs> I can't do that when it comes to, he shouldn't have done that. And she shouldn't have said that. And how dare that person. And that was unfair. And that was a betrayal. And it's like, here's the issue. Letting go is that simple. Yeah. But because it's just a pen in your hand and it doesn't hold a lot of meaning to you, you're able to just tell your fingers open up and you yeah. release your hold on the pen, right? And it drops. And you've been able to let it go and let it be whatever it is as a pen on the surface of a table, let's say. Right. But when it comes to emotional stuff or these stories and these experiences we've had, because we hold on to the nature of the story, we hold on to the experience, we replay it in our mind then to us, it doesn't seem that simple. It's not as tangible as picking up a pen. And so they struggle to let go. And yeah. what I found is just like you, that it's, it's a choice. Yep. And yes, these things happen and we're not diminishing. Both Jess and I have been through some horrific experiences. For all intent and purposes, we ought to be the stereotype of people who have been assaulted or gone through horrific things, right? And distrust people and distrust the world and distrust the police and forevermore. Exactly. And yet you're not that way. And I, you can't work with men who are incarcerated and work in the field of forgiveness. My God, exactly. doing what you do 
and and me and so many of us if we were holding on and harboring those yeah. resentments and the experiences that they happen what do you think was then the biggest thing that you learned from your experiences forgiveness That's, is number one yeah and also that we're all love and this touches on the last point that you made that you were just speaking about one thing that helped me fill in some questions i had was kabbalah i don't know if you're familiar with kabbalah Mm -hmm. and so when we look at the soul and the ego you know now when i look at things or when someone does something or i'm thinking certain things i say okay is this coming from a place of love is this coming from the soul or is it coming from ego so even when i think about the people who had raped me or the abuse that i experienced i look at it there's a judgment you know this whole thing of like yeah but he did this to me or yeah she did this so i feel like that's coming from a place of ego and we want to make the other person wrong versus okay, they're a soul on their own journey and really just being able to honor that and they're learning their own experiences and any kind of judgments I have on them is my ego speaking and that's not coming from a place of love. So that's really helped me in navigating things and even now of like, is this coming from a place of soul and ego? And even like you said, me working with the men in prison, I have this background of guys who are in the segregated unit, the protective custody are worse off than general population. So when I first went into prisons, I literally had the choice of general population, segregation, a PC as a general piece. I'm going general, no question about it. And then I sat there that night going, well, Jess, what's the, why is it that you can support a man who killed 10 people, but you can't support somebody who raped a child? Right. So I know that we have our personal boundaries, and it's very difficult. It can be very difficult in our humanness. However, when I looked from a soul-ego perspective, it was still judgment that I had against the person who had raped the child. So why can't I give love to that person? And That's right. making that choice of then dropping it, and funny enough, the universe has its ways. Nobody showed up in general population that night. Right. And I was like, oh my guess God. where I'm going. Yeah. <laughs> I went to segregation and I had a beautiful experience. Yeah. So what inspired you, stepping back for a moment then, what inspired you to start Flip the Script? And where did Flip the Script come from? Because remember, I talked... It comes from the that world that you... Well, yeah, and I, I talked earlier about lingo for all of yeah. you listening, right? That, that flip the script is a very specific piece of lingo that is used in the recovery world, at least here in the United States, in what's called a therapeutic community kind of model, right? We have these terms like the yeah. out-of-pocket and flipping the script and things like that. But... And Jess and I had a conversation about this previous to today when we had we hadn't we haven't spoken in a number of years and but we've stayed a, sort of in touch online and things like yeah. that but we really haven't you know spoken verbally and we reconnected and I said do you know that flip the script is and she was like no <laughs> like, no idea what so yeah I want I want to hear from you I know the story but I sure. I would love for you to tell you know, everybody out there listening, what really inspired you to start Flip the Script then, going through all that you went through, even though you reached a place of forgiveness? And where did Flip the Script come from? 
Sure. So I started, I not that I started, I did a TEDx talk a year ago and I, my message centered around forgiveness and because Ted has certain rules to follow, I knew that the story I was asked to share was not the story or message that I really wanted to share. And so I thought, you know, I have this, I know I have this powerful message to get out there and I want to tell my story in a certain way. And it's breathing inside of me powerfully in a certain way. And I bet there's other people like me that have a powerful story that are not professional speakers and can make a difference in the world. So this idea of a story sharing community came to me one day as I was sitting in my room and I thought, this is a little nutty, but I don't know where this is going because I have no aspirations to create anything like this. Not, I don't consider myself a professional speaker, even though I speak a lot. And so I put together a few people that I knew, advertised it to my network, had 25 people come out, you know, February 13th, wow. 2019, and everybody loved it. And I said, you know, I don't even know if it's going past this night and they all wanted it back. I think we just did our 10th or 11th event. Wow. That's amazing. <laughs> Which is like, you know, and it's growing, it's growing and it's going strong. And now so, is this just, is this just a, a community of people who come together and share stories of a particular kind of nature or do they just no particular nature so whatever their adversity is some people have abuse as their background some people it's something in a relationship wow and someone said something profound to us he was a guest mc and he said stories are personal messages are universal yes so some somebody might be listening and say, well, I don't have as dramatic as a, of a story or I didn't go through as anything intense as uh, Jess and Sue did. So I don't feel like I have a story. Well, everyone has a story. Everyone has experienced That's right. it. That's we right. all have a message within those stories. So yes. one thing I say is we'll start with your message. If you were, if tomorrow was your last day and you had one message to get out there, what would it be? And then if you can start with that, then you can back it up with the story. Yes. And that's what we tell our community. So everybody has the ability and I think also responsibility when you find the gift and the pain, a responsibility to other beings to inspire them and to help them see the light if they so choose to. Absolutely. And flip Absolutely. the script. That name, I was again, I was literally sitting there in my room and something dropped from above and it was literally flip the script. I wasn't even researching anything. No, maybe it's this, maybe flip the script. I'm like, oh, hey, it makes sense. Okay. Oh my God. See, I, I, I think the, the angels were like, flip the yes. script. <laughs> that total divine intervention. Oh my gosh. So, and so now you've written a book called Flip the Script. Yes. And it's coming out due in February, uh, February? 1st of 2020. I was yeah. right. February 1st. Okay. Yes. And so that's you have, and this is a longer interview than normal. This is a longer time. I hope you're yeah, good with time. I noticed. We'll, we'll, <laughs> yeah, we'll wrap up here soon. But this is just, you know, Jess, you are, you know, we met about six years ago. I right. was felt a connection with you then, even though we didn't even know each other, hadn't yeah. really shared anything about anything with each other at that point. And we met through a, a, a someone that we were doing our we yep. were part of that compilation book together and we were in a group together with, with that coach and the dynamic power of your heart 
was always something that I saw from the beginning. There's, there's mm. this, I think, and, and this can sound like a judgment and I absolutely, my audience knows how non-judgmental I work to be on a you know, regular basis. But I think there's something to be said for when we go through a tremendous amount of pain and we're willing to be vocal and stand in the gift of that pain and be vulnerable and be raw, that there is an energy that's felt just mm-hmm. kind of automatically, at least for me. Like yeah. when I meet someone and, I, and, and, and without even really talking with them yet, I can feel, and I think that's why I loved working in the prison myself Mm -hmm. and working with these men, because when they dropped their facade and the tough guy criminal mindset bullshit that landed them there in the first place, and they were willing to just be the loving beings that they were. Now, they made poor choices that landed them in prison, and maybe they deserved, quote unquote, deserved to be in prison you know, for the crimes they committed. Of course, we have to be responsible for our actions. Being in prison, though, doesn't mean that they're any better or or less than any other human on the planet. And when I looked at them and they were willing to shed that wall, that barrier, and they allowed themselves to just kind of be seen in their pain and for who they are, my God, that's like, how do you not love somebody like that and share love with them? And so it's the same when I meet other people who are willing to share their experiences and let down their walls. There's something so attractive about that. And I think that's, maybe I recognized that in you when we first met before I even really knew your story or you knew mine. Yeah, makes sense. I appreciate that. And sorry, Sue, before you go on, because you reminded me of this, why I also started Flip the Script working specifically with men was because even though I was married to a gang leader and people saw him as this feared guy or however he was portrayed in the news, I got the privilege of seeing a guy who, I got to see the loving side of him. I got to see who he truly was. And he was just someone else, just like you and I. And I had empathy and compassion for the way he grew up foster home to foster home, beat as a child, on welfare as a child. His dad, his biological dad only came back into his life to say, deal these drugs for me. Wow. So there's tens of thousands of men just like that, you know, very similar stories that are not to excuse any of their behaviors, but they're sitting behind bars because they've been pushed into a lifestyle. You know, again, this is not everyone across the board. Right. But I'm like, you know, there's this beautiful soul shining on the other side of their actions. And unfortunately, they're only known for the worst things they've ever done in society. But if we can look beyond that, there's just this magic. And when they see that they're valued, and you know exactly what this is like, Sue, it's, for me, I don't even have words. For me, the feeling, seeing that extra twinkle in their eye or the way they open up is like, wow. And that's why I leave prisons dancing, literally dancing in my car. And so sure. thankful, you know. I get that, yeah. Feeling. And and you know, and I I don't mean to have glossed over something when D passed away. Yeah. And and I want to go back to that just for a second. And and I know we're I'm jumping backwards a little here, but when D passed away, regardless of the fact that you had experienced a lot of these negatives, like you just said, you you had the privilege of loving 
the soul of the man who he was at the core that he was often too afraid to show to the world. Right. But he showed it to you in, in a lot of ways and a lot of times. And then when the fear would get to him, he would show that gang persona and be that tough guy who would be violent with you or would be jealous or would be possessive or, you know, had to play that role, right, of the gang leader and the tough guy to everybody else and, and make the choices he made. So even though you were both dating other people and you had learned how to essentially move on, yep. my God, like, if you don't mind sharing, what went through you? Because you had to be full of a lot of emotions, you'd moved on on the one level, but you don't stop loving somebody on a deeper level. And especially as the father of your children, when he passed away, what was that like for you? And of course, the children, of course. It was really hard. I was driving along one of the main streets in Toronto and I got the, that's when I got the news. And I remember collapsing on the the cement and tears and I couldn't even, if I tried to get a a word out I sounded almost like a man like my voice was I just couldn't get anything out and you know the thought of I didn't want to hide it from the kids and I told them that night and my oldest ran out of the room screaming and you know my son it looked like he was it looked like someone had stabbed him in the stomach like his eyes just like shot into this like and like tears welled up in his eyes and the youngest she was too young she was kind of like you know she was sad because she saw us sad it, I mean, it's not like we expected it and, right. you know, it was the crux of like, okay, we're, we're going to make this work with best communication of our life. We're going to make this work for the kids. He's going to be a co-parent with me and then gone. So it was very mm-hmm. tough. And even now still the old, the younger two, they got counseling and some help and the oldest one, you know, she was like, this is stupid. I don't need help. So we're dealing with the aftermath of yeah. trauma And I mean, again, that's a whole other conversation. So it's been, it was challenging to say the least. And, you know, we, we honor him, you know, even with my new husband now, he's really great. You know, Michael, you make sure that every birthday, uh, Dee's birthday, we celebrate the birthday. We get a cake for him. Oh, that's Um, an honor. Oh, what an honoring thing to, oh, how beautiful. Yeah. And, you know, and Michael, you know, encourages the kids to speak about him if they need to. And, the oldest one actually wanted to contact a medium the other day and she did that less than a week ago and got all these messages from from d and it's it's sometimes it's a little you know crazy but not crazy the things that the yeah. medium you know because there's no way they would know this information he said one of the things he said was i'm so sorry for what i did to the family and Aww. for messing up and sit, tell your mom i said hello and stuff like that so you know, oh, what peace that can bring, you know, I, I, I have a dear friend who's a medium who, and I get it. And there's things, there is no way these people <laughs> exactly. could know, like nicknames or things that yeah. were only, you know, shared with one or two or few other people ever, you know, yeah. definitely not on Google <laughs> and on the internet, no. right? And it's like, how the hell did they know this? So yeah, yeah whether you believe or not in that, I, I personally have experienced it. Obviously, you yeah. have, Jess. Okay, so no jump back to that for a second. So, so back to flip the script. You have, the, I can't wait to read this. This sounds like, I mean, look, you know, when I have guests on the show, 
I'm pretty good about keeping kind of the, the, the episodes to about an hour, let's say 50 some minutes to an hour <laughs> and not because they're boring yeah. or they're not interesting people. I mean, we can go on and on. It's just like, I don't want to, I, I don't want to create this like enormously long episode where people are tuning out. I though, am being unbelievably selfish here though, because it is so one, I just adore and love you Two. You are such a dynamic and powerful, amazing woman who really a soul, right? Yeah, Yeah. of course you're a woman. A soul who has been through some horrific experiences like pretty much all of us in our own ways, right? Whether we were raped or whether we have lived in a criminal lifestyle or had a criminal mindset or like you could have just moved a lot when you were a kid and there's trauma, right? I mean- We all experience difficult and challenging things in our life and things that we'll perceive as what I've called the big T trauma and the little T trauma pieces. And yet, I think it's a rare situation, which is I think what we're and others are both working toward, that it's not such a rare situation, to be able to forgive Mm. and let go so we can share our messages, right? That that old um, phrase I've heard that, you know, your mess with age becomes your message, right? Message that your mess with age becomes your message. And so when we look at our messes, quote unquote, we look at our past, we look at our choices and our experiences, and then we allow the time to pass for us to see the gift in the pain of it. Then we can turn that into our messages that we can share with people and create a larger ripple effect and impact to others. And so what I love about Flip the Script and your work, especially in kind of the story sharing community and with men who are incarcerated, is that you are really walking your talk. You are standing in that place of forgiveness. And so Jess has generously offered to offer you all up a chapter of the book, it's it's not coming out till February 1st. Yeah. I would highly encourage you all to go to www.jessicasantonato.com forward slash the dash book. And, and I will spell that out and it'll be in the show notes as well. That's www.jessicasantonato.com for Nancy. T for Tom, O-N-A-T-O dot com forward slash the dash book and grab that copy of this chapter. I have a feeling we're going to read this chapter, Jess, and we're going to be so compelled that your book is going to just fly off the shelves when it comes out in full force in February. And I was going to say that that link, that's for actually ordering the entire book. So I'll give you the other link for just a chapter because I have not given the My apologies. I didn't realize that. Yeah, no, that's okay. And I've never given the chapter out to anyone. So this is actually like exclusive to to your group. I haven't given anyone the first chapter. Oh my gosh. that, That link. 
Oh, see, I'm so honored. And you all should. Okay, so still. Okay, let me back up then. Go to <laughs> www.jessicasantonato forward slash the book and order the book. Yes, and thank you. I have a feeling that reading this book will potentially change your life yeah. because you'll be able to see in much richer detail, not even detail of the details, but a much richer detail of the process that, yeah. that it sounds like you went through to reach this place where you could literally flip your own script right. within the, the experiences you had. So go there and get that. And then I will make sure that we add the link for the free chapter to the show notes. Perfect. So please, please check that out. Jess, what is that kick your butts? Because there was a lot of butts in here that- There was a lot know, of butts. Right, that we we live when we go through stuff like this. What would you say would be a big kick your butts moment that was in your life? A big one that comes to me was when I was that time when I told you, "Do I run, or do I trust?" Ah, because it's the the ego, the humanist wants to be like, "But this could be the worst thing you ever gonna do." Right, right. <laughs> And yeah. the higher self is actually, this is the best thing for you right now. Yeah. So that's a, that was a big but for me. Yeah. And what would be a piece of kick your butt kind of advice that you would want to offer up to the listeners? Big kick your butt advice. I would say have a deep love affair with yourself. Mm. Because when you love yourself unconditionally and know yourself as love, as an extension of source, an extension of universal energy, you shift not only yourself, but also everyone else because we're all one, right? We're all connected. So I also tell people like some, you know, I have aspirations to work with men who are incarcerated and that looks like it's different for everybody. But even if, there goes another but, but even if you want to change, quote unquote, change the world, Right. You can even do that by simply loving yourself because when you yes. love yourself deeply, you're also putting that love out into the world. Yes. You, you show up in a different way when you love yourself. In substance abuse, we, we've had a phrase, you can't keep it till you give it away. Mm. So you can't keep the love until you give the love away because the more love you give away, the more you receive and the more you have to give. And it just becomes yeah. this endless looping cycle that grows in a positive way. You know, you can't keep faith unless you can give it away. You can't keep love unless you give it away. You can't keep even money, right? You can't keep money. The more you give, the more you open up the room to receive. Exactly. Right? So have that love affair. I love that. Yes. Have that love affair with yourself. Yes. Because in that place, you'll stand in that space of love and exude that. Exactly. And share that with others. And then it ripples out. My yeah. God, Jess, this has been such a fascinating, you know, conversation and reconnection. I am so honored that you, you know, came on here today. and have Thank been you for having so, me. Oh, absolutely. And been so generous with your time. Again, check out the show notes, everybody. Please seriously look at going to www.jessicasantonato.com forward slash the dash book and pre-ordering Flip the Script. I just know you will not be disappointed in reading in more detail on how 
Jess was able to take her pain and turn it into one of the most beautiful gifts in her life, one of, and be able to continue reaching others and having and creating that larger impact in the world. Thank you so much, Jess, again, for being here. You're welcome. Thank you, Sue. And I would love to offer up to all of you and say that, you know, you are more than you know. And if you are struggling with any kind of thoughts of how you are not good enough or you are your past history or the experiences you have had are really a part of who you are, please know that they're not. Please know that you are at your core infinite love and that you have infinite possibilities within you and you can walk your infinite path when you choose to step on that path from a place of love even if you've gone through a lot of experiences and if you find yourself saying, but I have gone through this and this person, this and that person, that know that we can continue to kick your butts into oblivion, into infinity and beyond. I will see you guys next week. Have an amazing week. Please feel free to rate and review the show and share this with others so we can keep kicking those butts and ciao for now. You've been listening to Kick Your Butts, where sitting on your butts is no longer an option, figuratively and literally. To access the show notes and important links from today's episode, please visit kickyourbutts.com. While you're there, please share your Kick Your Butts story by clicking the Start Recording button. It might just be included in a future episode. Thanks for listening today. Now get out there and kick those butts to the curb.